Good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Community Leewood Campus. We're glad you're here on this Advent Sunday. And uh, my name is Tom Nelson and I'm just really delighted you're here. I hope you sense uh, the warmth of our hearts and we welcome you here today. I'd like us to bow in prayer uh, as I get ready to give the message this morning. And uh, if you just bow your heads and hearts with me as we pray. Lord, we do have a sense that you are about the glorious impossible. And uh, Lord, we need you to tune our hearts not only to praise, but we ask that you would tune our ears to hear your word. So Holy Spirit, speak to each one of us wherever we are in our spiritual journey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe for me that uh, the first Star Wars movie I ever saw was in college. Now, for some of you who are younger, you think, my goodness, that's a long time ago. Um, but if you, in case you haven't wondered, uh, there's a Star Wars thing that's going to happen in 2015. Um, some of you are fans. I, I remember on my college campus, the first time I heard about it, there was a buzz about this new movie. So I went and uh, I was hooked the moment I saw the crawler. You know, that's that, that little scrolling that says a long time ago in a galaxy far away. And I have to say, the seventh edition, right, the seventh movie, the Force, I love The Force Awakens, I think that's the best one of the whole bunch, it's got to be, um, It's something that really gets me excited, but I have to say that I was disappointed when my son showed me the trailer this week, that I have to wait a whole year. How dare they do that to us? December 2015, goodness. Well, we all love impossible stories. I think that's part of our interest, many of us in this movie. There's something about impossible stories that do something for us and to us. Um, And uh, I asked the question, why? Why is it? Why is it that these impossible stories of fiction send our imaginations into warp speed? There's Lewis's Great Narnia, if you're a fan of Lewis. There's Tolkien's Middle Earth. There's J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Wizardly World, right? I mean, whatever the story is, these impossible stories capture our hearts and minds. But why? Well, if you are a person of somewhat, you know, literary sophistication and interest, you probably have a lot of answers to that because it's a complex question. But I want to suggest to you that one of the reasons we love impossible stories is we were created for one. And not only were we created for one, we are a part of an impossible story, not not in a galaxy far away in some fictional world, but an impossible story that is taking place and has taken place and will take place in time and space in this earth. This impossible story, as Christians, we call the Advent story. It's a story of a creator God who invades his world, his broken world, and comes to be among us. This is Advent. So if you have a Bible this morning, electronic or paper, I'd like to make sure or encourage you to follow along as we look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Now, we mentioned last week again, and Pastor Kenny mentioned that this book is an historical book. And so I want to remind us the story that Luke gives us is anchored in historical events. He makes a great deal as he launches his story about the exactation or kind of exacting of these eyewitness accounts. So I'm going to reread verses 1 through 4 uh, as we enter into this story because this is at the heart of Luke's literary integrity. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as, they, as, we, or as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, 
having, notice, followed all things closely for some time past. To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, what Luke writes, he intends for us to know that he believed actually happened. So I don't know where you are in your faith journey, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, if you are sort of a faith agnostic. Wherever you are, we need to understand that Luke's gospel, the story we enter, is not from his standpoint the same as Harry Potter. Luke says he is writing accurate history that really happened. Whether we believe that Luke is saying these things and they actually happen, the integrity of our understanding of this literature is to suggest that he believes that they have taken place. This is not fiction. And he goes way out of his way, and I want to emphasize that as we enter the story. Because however you understand the story, wherever you categorize yourself as a believer or non-believer or somewhere in between, Luke himself, a believer, must have felt like we often do as he penned the story. Like, wow, God, what a strange way to save the world. Now, last week, we looked at the first part of the story, and we explored the strangeness of the earlier, earlier part of chapter 1, and that is the story of a priest named Zacharias and his elderly wife who received this amazing, miraculous gift of John, a miracle child. What we tried to say, what Pastor Kenny said last week, is that This text tells us right off the blocks that God is surprising. He's always surprising, but he is always consistent. He is surprising and he is consistent. This morning, as we continue the story, as Luke weaves, perhaps, and I would say most scholars believe, the greatest, most brilliant Greek in the New Testament, with brilliant artistry, as he weaves this together, he wants us to know the second idea, and that is the God of the impossible loves the impossible. The God of the impossible loves the impossible. Now, if you'd walk back with me in time, put on your sandals, it's about 60 AD. Luke sits down and, with his literary pen, inspired pen, and writes the story. And I'd like for you to imagine with me for a moment that in doing his writing research as a responsible historian, that Luke makes his way down a bumpy Roman road, perhaps to Ephesus. Many people Scholars believe that Mary, in her elderly years, lived in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. Clearly, Mary is now an elderly woman, if you do the math. And uh, while her body is showing the signs of wear and tear and age, her quick wit and sharp mind are not. You can imagine Luke knocking on her door. Uh, Luke may have had some contact with her before in his travels, but they reconnect, they hug, they have tea. Uh, They tell stories about common people they love, and Luke sits down with scroll in hand and an old, old kind of pen. And he looks at Mary, and he says, now, Mary, tell me what it was like to be a young teenager when Gabriel came to you and told you that you had been chosen to bring the Son of God into the world. Mary describes that unforgettable night, that unforgettable moment. Luke takes notes with rapt attention as as she finishes the story. I can imagine Luke looking at her and saying, now I'm going to write the story. I'm going to retell your story. 
But if there's one thing you want me to get across, Mary, what would it be? Mary pauses for a moment. She says, I think in one word, it is impossible. It would be that the God, Luke, you and I love, the God of the impossible loves the impossible. And Luke skillfully and subtly and sometimes explicitly, but always meticulously in his stylistic Greek, colors the thread of impossibility through the whole story. Here in verses 26 through 56, we find two transforming truths that Luke wants us to grasp. First, we are going to look at God picks impossible people. And secondly, God pursues impossible faith. So if you're following the scaffolding of Luke's thought, first, God picks impossible people and God pursues impossible faith. Now, as Luke interacted with Mary and got her eyewitness account, he must have said to her at some time, why you, Mary, you know, why did God pick you to carry his son? Because Luke was astute in the cultural context of the day. Because Mary was an amazingly unlikely candidate for the job. And so what he does is he connects two stories together, Zacharias and Mary, with brilliant literary connections in riveting contrast to contrast Zacharias with Mary. He wants us to feel the contrast culturally, stylistically, because Zacharias, if you remember last week or you look earlier in this text, an angel visited Zacharias. He was a priest in the temple. You remember, he was an elderly man. And this makes sense in the cultural context. If God is going to do business with someone, it's got to be a priest in a temple in Jerusalem, for goodness sakes. That makes sense. He's paid to be good, for goodness sakes. But what doesn't make sense culturally, what is shocking is that God dispatches perhaps his highest angel. We know that from Daniel. Gabriel is big-time stuff. And he dispatches Gabriel to a remote village in Nazareth. If you've studied the Gospel of John, you know the thought about Nazareth. (laughs) Nathaniel looks, remember, if you've read John, can anything good come out of that place? Mm, Jerusalem, yes. Nazareth, no. Now remember, Zacharias is male. He's elderly, he's a priest. But what's going on here? Mary is a young teenager. She's poor. I imagine her busy doing dishes or chores in her parents' home. And the reader of the original text said, come on. You've got to be kidding me. Impossible. Culturally, this doesn't make sense. Mary has all the strikes against her. Think about it. She is young in a culture that is honoring the elderly. She is female in a culture that is male-dominated. Do you feel the riveting contrast? The chalkboard contrast? Screech, screech. She is poor in a culture that saw wealth as evidence of God's favor and blessing. Wow. She is unmarried in a culture that tied female worth to marriage. Yet, the God of the impossible loves the impossible. And Eugene Peterson, in his brilliant introduction to the Gospel of Luke, captures better than anyone I have ever read what Luke is doing here. And he does it all the way through his Gospels. Eugene Peterson writes this. He says, Luke is a most vigorous champion of the outsider. An outsider himself, the only Gentile in an all-Jewish cast of New Testament writers. As Luke tells the story... All of us who have found ourselves on the outside, looking in on life with no hope of gaining entrance, and who of us hasn't felt it, 
now find the doors wide open, found and welcomed by God in Jesus Christ. And what we begin to see as we look carefully at Luke's skillful literary artistry is there is almost a giddy delight that flows from his inspired pen. The giddy delight of an outsider welcomed by God, a God who loves the impossible, who found the unlikely doors of grace open to himself. And you feel it, you sense it with tingling tone in the Greek text. Luke's threat of impossibility continues in this story. And you'll notice that the impossible message that Mary receives stuns her from the angel Gabriel. Mary's told, hey, you're going to be pregnant. There's a special baby boy that's coming. His name is not Joseph, who you're betrothed to. His name is Joshua, or in Hebrew, Yeshua. God is salvation, Jesus. The angel said these words to her, and it must have stunned her. Look at me in verse 32, if you have your Bible open. <clears throat> he will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. How did Mary hear these words? Mary is a devout Jewish young girl. She had heard these messianic echoes of the Samuel scroll. She had heard read to her in her home and in the synagogue. These were words of hope, a culture, a Jewish community under the shackles of Rome clung to with hope. Words spoken to David. Imagine this, a thousand years before, that through King David, through his lineage, a Messiah would come who would have an eternal throne, not just a temporal one. Mary immediately connected the dots of the Samuel scroll. She's stunned, but not theologically. This is plausible, and she has a spine-tingling, wonderful response. But what is most impossible in Mary's mind was not the impossible message, but the impossible method. I love this in the story because young teenage Mary was sharp. She knew where babies came from. It wasn't the stork, no matter how kosher or non-kosher. She had it down. She knew biology. And so in verse 34, she says, I love this. And Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I'm a, I'm a virgin? Now, when we translate this phrase from the Koine Greek, um, I want to suggest to you that while it can be translated this way, I think a more um, delicate translation that is actually more literalistic in the actual Greek text is that she says, since I have not known a man. Now, why is this so important? It's important in the story, but it's important to Luke. Who's Luke? He's not only an outsider, but he's a physician. And Luke seems to be playing a little bit here with sophisticated language. See, Mary's response is not an unwillingness to believe. That is to miss the nuance of the text and the cultural dynamic. It is in her knowledge of biology, which Luke and Mary share as a physician. Can you imagine that? Do you get the humor? And that's many, true for many of us today in the modern world, right? Where faith and biology often seem to collide and we have tension. But what Luke wants us to know is the dripping irony. Do you sense it? Do you feel it? That Mary is a God-seeker in a sense. She's a devout Jewish girl. But who's really seeking who? God is seeking Mary all along. 
Now notice in the riveting contrast that while Zacharias, in his response, gets a reproof, a proving kind of response from the angel on his unbelief, what is Mary's response? Mary receives from angel Gabriel, the top taco of the angelic bunch in my mind, a response of reassurance of her question, not of unbelief, but incredulity. And notice, Luke places, do you see the sophistication and beauty here? Luke ends the story that Mary told him with these words that are the epicenter of the entire chapter, verse 37. For nothing, notice, will be impossible with God. How did Mary hear this? These words of reassurance Mary had heard before, the exact words, or very close to it, They were words written earlier in another moment. A miraculous birth of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah. Isaac was a little laughter. And in this promise that this miracle child in a barren womb of Sarah would emerge, the promised son, God says to Abraham and to Sarah, nothing is impossible with God. Genesis 18, 14. So Gabriel is looking at Mary and reassuringly saying, and the emphatic nuance of the text is, you, yeah, yeah, yes, you, like Sarah, have found favor with God. And the question for us as readers is to ask the same question of us. Luke wants to ask the question, so what about you and me? Have we experienced God's transforming grace in our life? Do you think, do I think, I am a likely candidate or unlikely candidate for God's grace? See, if you or I think we are a likely candidate for God's grace, that's a concern. Because God picks the most unlikely candidates for his grace, his love, and redeeming work. It's those who don't believe they need his grace, that are in the greatest danger. See, there's prideful danger for all of us. There is. We can have a self-righteousness, we're religious, we've been in church all our life, we do all these good things, we don't really need the grace of God, the other people do. Or we can be on the other side where we're looking at our life, maybe you were there this morning and our past is brutal, we got issues we're dealing with, we have all kinds of sin and junk in our life, and you go, God could never love me and unconditionally reach out to me and give me grace. See, both sides are morphing of pride in our hearts, and they're both deadly. Because before a holy God, whether we think we're really righteous or very bad, we are massively falling short of the holiness of God. All of us desperately need gospel faith and gospel grace. Before a holy God, we all fall so short, it's unfathomable between our sin and God's holiness. No matter how good or bad we are. It is only God's gracious intervention like Gabriel with Mary, through the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his glorious resurrection that can put us back into our right relation with God. And you know, I don't know if you're like me, but let me just, and I hope you don't want to leave because you know I've, I have a lot that God needs to do in my life. But I have to tell you honestly, sometimes my greatest spiritual pride is not just me, but how I think of others. 
Have you ever had that, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, or you look at a community, or people who believe a certain way, or live a certain way, or friends, or colleagues, or people are say, oh, our children, or family members, like, them never be interested in God. They're so far gone. You ever thought that? I have, and I have to confess it and repent. This text reminds us that no one's too far gone, no too far away from God. No, no one's so far and so sinful and so outside of God's love, they can't be reached with his grace. Paul was an unlikely candidate. He was a religious zealot, and sometimes that is the most difficult to get through. And he experiences the transforming grace of the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And he writes this brilliant treatise to the book, to the church at Rome. And in chapter one, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the very power of God to anyone who believes. Mary experiences transforming grace. Question for us, Luke wants us to rest with, is have we? Let me just say a word pastorally about our understanding of Mary. Because the question I'm often asked, and this text raises it, I think, wisely, is how do we view Mary? I don't know the religious tradition or faith tradition, but some Christian traditions elevate Mary and put her on a pedestal in a way that Luke and all the other writers of Scripture clearly do not. Some hold to the idea of Mary's immaculate conception. That means that she was birthed without original sin. Now, what we don't often understand, this is not a long history in the doctrine of the church. This is a rather recent one because it was codified in doctrine of a religious tradition in 1854 by Pope Pius X. Or the IX, sorry, make sure I get that right. Mary was born a sinner just like you and me. This text clearly teaches that. And she needed grace just like you and me. And the scriptures do not support in any way ever the idea of praying to Mary or placing her in any superhuman category. The scriptures are abundantly clear that there is one mediator between God and Jesus Christ, or God the Father and humans, and that's Jesus Christ alone. But we should admire Mary very much. Not because of her birth, but because of her faith. And that's where Luke has us in the story. God not only picks impossible people like Mary and you and me, God also pursues impossible faith. Now notice where Luke goes in the story. Beginning in verse 39 and all the way to verse 56, if you're following along, Mary's impossible faith is on brilliant display in a kaleidoscope of colors for us to see and emulate. Luke wants us to grasp that God-honoring faith is a proper response to who God is and what he has done. And so he puts on display, look at Mary's response. Notice verse 39. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, English translators of this Greek text often have a hard time bringing the the nuances of this out. And I want to suggest to you, with all due respect to this translating committee, that this response is a bit soft, in my opinion. Because the word used there is the word for the lowest servant, and it is not just cognitive, it is deeply visceral. It is about Mary's submission and emotion and availability to the will of God. And if I were to paraphrase it in context... Mary is saying, as this devout, brilliant, young Jewish teenage girl, God, our father Abraham, I'm all in. I'm all yours. 
That's the picture. Notice there is no hint of an incremental response. Mary is not dipping her little tippy toes in some faith pool. She is plunging headfirst in. This is not a quid pro quo kind of response. In other words, not God, I'll do this if you do this for me. There's none of that. This is not, I need a more information God response, right? If I were Mary, I was like, okay, how about an early pregnancy test? Let's check this out. How about a visit to my doctor? (laughs) Yeah, come on, come on, give me something to hang on to here. Or can you imagine Mary thinking, oh, wow, how do I tell Joseph? How do I tell, what do I tell my parents? Wow, what a place to be. I think Mary is where Frederick Beekner is when he makes this great statement about faith. Beekner says, faith is a foot on the ground, a foot in the air, and a pin in the stomach. And that's where Mary is. Faith in an impossible God who loves the impossible often puts a pit in our stomach. You may be here this morning and you're facing a step of faith in your life. Perhaps you're not a Christian yet. You know that. You haven't given your life to Christ and repented of your sin and trusted him as your Lord and Savior and it's scary to think about it. And it puts a pit in your stomach. And will I encourage you to take that step of faith like Mary? How will you respond? Maybe you're facing a big career decision, a big decision in your business or your work this week, and you are having a sleepless night, right? You're feeling overwhelmed and afraid. What if this goes wrong? Or perhaps you're in a very serious relationship today. You know, holiday times, a lot of rings happen and things like that. And you're right on the precipice of making the biggest decision of your life, (laughs) the biggest step of your faith to commit yourself to someone else, or you're like, wow, can I do this? And perhaps this morning, the greatest step of faith for you is this holiday season you are facing, and you know it, one of the most potential lonely times of your life because you have lost a loved one this year, and you're asking God, can I take the step of faith to trust you that you will care for me when I feel such deep loneliness? Will you be there for me? Taking steps of faith are often scary. And what I have found in my experience is, yes, doubt doubt is a difficult challenge for faith. But in my life, and I hear this over, I think the greatest challenge to this kind of faith is fear, not doubt. It is not incidental. It is not accidental. It is heightened in the original language that Gabriel says to Mary right away in the tenderest words, Mary, don't be afraid. Maybe that's God's word to you today through the Spirit. Don't be afraid. Take the step. Liz and I arrived in Kansas City many years ago to begin Christ's community. We were scared spitless. We were. And I remember many things about that moment. I've had a lot of steps of faith God has asked me to take that have been very uncomfortable, very high risk. A pit in my stomach, you bet driving that rider truck here, moving into a little apartment on Lenexa. And I remember, as I've said before, getting on my knees, crying like a baby, wondering, what on earth have I done? What's next? How do we do this? That's where Mary was. Can you imagine the what-ifs? Running through her mind, the what-next? This is why I think she said to Luke, I made the quickest mad dash to get out of there as possible. You ever been there and need to process? Your feelings... 
She runs. The picture is she rushes to Elizabeth. She gets out of Dodge. She's got to process this. So Luke describes her rushing off. And notice Elizabeth's response. Because often big steps of faith are encouraged in incremental ways by God. This precious, brilliant, young teenage Jewish girl is given a boost for her faith. She goes to Elizabeth. Right away, there's a physical reaction, a miraculous reaction of the baby in the tomb. Baby in the tomb. Sorry. Baby in the womb. (laughs) Just see if you're listening, right? Preachers say that. I'm just thinking ahead. (laughs) But there's actually a miraculous physical reaction that Mary must have seen moving in Elizabeth's womb. But not only that, what is even more stunning to a Jewish mind is what Elizabeth says, because what Elizabeth says to Mary is blasphemy at the highest level. Unless it's true. And she looks at this young teenage Jewish girl and she says, Ah, the mother of my Lord God. Can you imagine what it meant for Elizabeth to say that and what it meant for young Mary? Like, okay, I hear it. Come on, we can do this. And notice what the text says. Blessed is she who believes her faith. Can you imagine, just imagine Mary running into Elizabeth's house and they hug each other with tears of joy rolling down their cheeks. What a moment it must have been. Don't you think heaven erupted in robust applause at that moment? I can't read this text without wanting to applaud. Yes, Elizabeth. Yes, Mary. And now we see Luke's contraction of Mary's song, her response, called the Magnificat. And if you look at this text of how Mary praises God, you notice that it echoes the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 very closely. Hannah received the miracle child too in a barren womb she had as an elderly lady. And when God does the impossible in Hannah's life, she sings this song. And Mary plucks many of the lines from Hannah's song. Do you hear the continuity of the impossible God with Sarah and Abraham? Do you hear it? Do you hear the impossible continuity and the antiphonal refrains and heaven's applause with Hannah and Samuel? And do you hear the antiphonal refrain of the great reversal of fortune with Mary and Elizabeth? Notice the great reversal. It's all over here, and you can read it more this week. Notice the themes. God exalts the lowly and humbles the proud. Do you see that? God satisfies the hungry. He seeks justice for the oppressed. He chooses the most unlikely candidates to be the recipients of his mercy and grace and purpose on earth. Those who have found themselves on the outside now, now, have a welcome mat. They have been welcomed by God and Jesus. God picks impossible people, and he pursues impossible faith. See, impossible faith through the eyes and heart of this precious little teenage girl, is an impossible faith has nowhere else to go but God and needs no one else but God. 
No wonder Elizabeth said, blessed are you, Mary, who will be like that. That is the faith. A whole life faith of heart, soul, mind, body, and strength that we're called to embrace. And it's life-changing. Some of you know that I have been on a crusade for mac and cheese. I know that sounds a little silly, but something happened this week that I've been so stunned, and I've said this before, that everywhere I go, restaurants around the country, everybody's talking about mac and cheese. And my wife and I were invited to dinner, a really nice dinner this week in Kansas City, and we sit down, and the waitress comes up, and we have a little bit of a conversation, and she starts talking about the menu, she says, you've got to try our, there it is, no prompt, mac and cheese. I'm like, I keep hearing this. And then she said, and this is the exact words, our mac and cheese will change your life. That's exactly what she said, scouts on her. And I'm like, wow, I got to try this. First service, someone asked me, please tell us if you're, yes, it was really good, actually. But this is where Luke has us. He is telling us, that this will change your life. It is the best. This is the faith that transforms everything. Mary was a disciple of Christ. We can move this, sorry. Before she was his mom. For had she not believed, she would have never conceived. Mary's faith, too, is not the achievement of merit, but the gift of grace. And in his grace, Emmanuel has been at work long before we know him. And he offers each of us the opportunity to respond just like Mary did. So let me challenge all of us this morning. What is our response going to be? How will we embrace the God who loves the impossible. I want to give you three questions I'd like you to write down if you have a piece of paper and reflect on them today and this week. First one is this, questions I'm asking myself. What are the things in my life that are just too big for God? What are the things? Maybe a relationship I'm dealing with, a scenario at work, a health issue, emotional or physical. What is too big for God in your life right now? Secondly, who are you really trusting? See, we all live by faith, whether we're religious or not. Maybe a person, maybe us, maybe an ideology, maybe money. We all trust something. And what we trust, we follow. Third question, how will I respond to how God is revealing himself to me? What is God saying to you this morning, friends? Is Luke's story really true? See, this is the question every one of us faces again and again at Christmas. Is this the story of the Son of God coming as a human, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, dying for sinners like you and me, that we might believe in him and be eternal life? Is this story true? Or is this a creation of our own imagination and emotional need? Each Christmas, we confront that reality. Will you respond in faith? 
What door of opportunity is God opening for you that requires faith in your life right now? Your family goals require faith. How about your work objectives? What lays before you in 2015? Your finances? What will be your response this morning to the God who loves the impossible? I am so thankful for Mary. Her response of faith is stunning. And yet how costly it would be if you know the rest of the story for her. All faith is costly, but ultimately unbelief is even more costly. Because a lack of faith and unwillingness to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior and to walk with him, without that we can never experience the life God has for us now and forever. I wonder, don't you wonder how Luke closed this interview with Mary as he got eyewitness accounts from her? Do you wonder? My hunch is that Mary described her excruciating heartache as she stood near the cross where her son Jesus was crucified before her, before her eyes. Moms, can you imagine? But I think Mary ended the conversation describing to Luke what it was like that morning outside the empty tomb. And I have a hunch that with a joyful smile, a twinkle in her eye, a bounce in her step, a look of mysterious wonder, she said to Luke, the God of the impossible loves the impossible. We're reminded of that truth as we gather around the Lord's Holy Communion table this morning. We do it with gratitude. And may we, with heart and mind and soul, reflect the words of the psalmist, and the hymnal writer that I've been thinking about this week, ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriends us. At Christ's community, we practice open communion. That means you do not have to be a member of Christ's community to gather around the Lord's communion table, but it does mean you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've come to him. Let us now prepare our hearts as we respond in prayer. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may we embrace the faith of a young teenage girl whose all-in faith glorified you and furthered your redemptive work on this earth. Lord Jesus, our hearts overflow with gratitude and tender affection for you. That you left the throne room of heaven, you emptied yourself, you took on human flesh. Wow. You humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross that we might be rescued from the hideous, evil jaws of sin and death. So bless these elements of the bread and the vine, and may our hearts and minds and bodies be renewed for faithful service for you this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.